When you step into a new culture and want to fit in, it helps to know about the news and the gossip that locals are talking about. It was a big mistake. It was a big, major mistake. We all knew that thanks to a paparazzi who was right there. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Friends from Spain fill us in on the shenanigans of their royal family and the more serious topics they're discussing these days in the tapas bars and coffee shops of Spain. Since Roman times, the hottest gossip in Britain has often been found at the spa town of Bath. Everybody that was anybody wanted to visit Bath. A hometown guide from Bath explains why it's such an ideal place to enjoy the pleasures of England. And an American tells us about the pleasant surprises she found after she and her husband said goodbye to their lives in the USA and relocated in Merida in southern Mexico. There's a lot of beautiful old homes, many of which, when we first moved there, were crumbling, abandoned. It's the talk of the town on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. As they say, when life gives you lemons, maybe it's time to make some lemonade. That's exactly what Ellen Fields did more than a decade ago when the recession hit in California and she and her husband both found themselves out of work. Since then, they've figured out how to live their dream in southern Mexico. And the website they manage has become the English language go-to resource for the Yucatan. We'll hear what it's like to start over in the Yucatan in just a bit. We'll also catch up with some of my favorite Spaniards who give us the lowdown on what people in Spain have on their minds these days, from the latest royal scandals to the country's economic struggles. But first, let's slip into the soothing waters of Bath, where England's upper crust has been mingling in its elegant spas since the times of the ancient Romans. The broad avenues and harmonious Georgian bathstone buildings make it easy to imagine why Jane Austen set famous scenes of her novels in Bath. Mark Seymour grew up in Bath, and he's joining me now to help us plan a visit to his charming hometown. Mark, thanks for being with us. Thank you for letting me be here. By the way, Bath is just a couple hours west of London. It's easy to fly into Heathrow and go directly to Bath. And uh, now you grew up in Bath. It's had some famous residents. It's quite expensive. Uh, Who lives in Bath and what's it like to actually call it home? Bath is now, as you rightly say, it's very close to London. We have access to London, hour, hour and a half by train. Uh, So it's it's become a commuter city for Mm -hmm. the city of London. So average cost of a building in Bath has escalated dramatically. I think it's the most expensive place outside of London to live in. Especially with the fast connection into London, because big shots can commute in four days a week or something like that. On the high-speed train, yeah. And really have the best of both worlds. Just from a practical point of view, I think when you fly into England, rather than dealing with London right off the bat when you've got jet lag, take the train or the bus from Heathrow Airport out to Bath and get over jet lag in, in this elegant, relaxed, charming example of urban England. It's a great tip, actually. I mean, London can assault all the senses and and to find yourself one morning in the beautiful, gorgeous Somerset countryside surrounded by this lovely Georgian architecture. And there are other routes in. I mean, you don't necessarily have to fly into London nowadays. There's an airport just 15 miles to the west of Bath in Bristol. Bristol. Now, Bath goes way back to Roman times. In fact, originally it was called Aquasulis, right? A Roman. uh, Was it a spa as a Roman town? The Romans actually built it up and developed it as a spa resort, is the phrase. So people in Londinium could go to Aquasulis to take a bath. Yes. And when you go to Bath today, Bath, as you would say in England, Bath, Bath, Bath. uh, you can actually, they've excavated the Roman original mineral spa 
And it's a marvelous museum all around it with the beautiful gold mask of, who's that, Minerva, the goddess? Yes, Sulis Minerva. Um, The baths themselves, they've been dug by archaeologists. They are now a a living museum, if you like. They're a centerpiece of bath. They're the best-preserved Roman baths anywhere in the Roman world. After Rome, Bath also was very important and uh, charming and small as Bath is today. It's hard to imagine that kings were coronated right there in the Abbey in Bath at one time a thousand years ago. Yes, back in the uh, 900s, King Edgar. Now, when we look at all the wealth of Bath today, part of it, I'm sure, is because of its spa. Part of it is because of the wool business. That's what made a lot of the great buildings in that area. But it also became quite run down and forgotten. And then it had a huge resurgence in the 1700s. Queen Mary uh, visited this little uh, provincial town. She partook of the waters, as we would say today. And lo and behold, uh, she was happy in life. Uh, she was very unhappy in the fact that she hadn't conceived children. Also, oh, she was uh, hoping to be able to have a child. Very and much she was so. frustrated and she went to Bath and she must have been pretty desperate. And she heard some like fragile legend about this fancy water. Exactly. Yeah, and, cures all, including... And then, uh, in, one year later, England's got an heir. Yeah, exactly. And That's of course, enough to put a town on the map. If it it's saying put it on the map. Mineral, curative waters. Yes, everybody that was anybody wanted to visit Bath thereafter. But then they have this whole Georgian period, and you know, we, we think of the term neoclassical architecture in England. It's Georgian architecture. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, Bath was a trend-setting city during this Georgian period. It was. Um, again, this little village out in the middle of nowhere in this wonderful landscape of Somerset up on the hills, it would have been lovely. And uh, these people, the rich and wealthy, were desperate to get out of these dirty, horrible, That's right. this was horrible uh, filthy cities. Kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this place was it. As soon as people started to put their name to it, more people wanted to go. So if you were uh, rich and capable, you could go to Bath and really live the ultimate. This must yes. have been the ultimate resort. and It became a and, resort town. And yeah. there were personalities. This Bo Nash was like the master of ceremonies. Bo Nash is a great character, uh, like the man who was a loser. He went off to university, lasted three months. He joined the military, he lasted three months. Each time his father bailed him out, he eventually wound up in London gambling. Um, he did very well in the, in the gambling profession, and uh, of course he found out that in the summer all of his clients, as he would have called them, his gambling partners, were going off to the West Country, off to Somerset. So he followed them, and uh, he decided, okay, well, if they're there, that's where the money is. Um, he set up gambling halls all over town, and he, he became a very, very wealthy, and He pretty much ran the scene socially, and, and he yep. established the norms. The and uh, Gambling went into uh, matchmaking and dating, and he hooked people up and made money out of that as well. And, and this was an ceremonies. age when just this Georgian sort of... Uh, sensibilities is not the word, but I mean, they had wide sidewalks so women could walk down showing off these wide skirts just so they could their fancy fabrics. Uh, You had uh, people running around in sedan chairs. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, The word cheerio, we use it today as as, as a salutation when you you leave a premises. Um, In those days, if you were arriving at a premises, uh, Bo Nash would uh, actually be standing there as master of ceremonies in one of the great halls, one of the gambling halls probably, or dance hall perhaps. And he would call a chair for you, and it would be chair ho, chair ho. Oh, so when you were leaving, somebody would holler for the chair. Yes. Chair ho. Chair ho. Cheerio. Chair ho. And then they'd have torches, because they didn't have uh, electric street lamps back That's then. Right. And you've got the remnants of that in some of these elegant buildings today, the snuffers, where you could snuff out your torch. Some lovely, lovely wrought ironwork around some of these uh, gorgeous that. buildings, and these snuffers are still apparent. We're talking about Bath in Somerset, England, and our guide is native son Mark Seymour. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Stephanie has emailed us from Bloomington in Minnesota, and Stephanie writes, We're interested in seeing some of the Jane Austen sites. Which ones do you recommend in particular? So I understand Jane Austen actually lived in Bath for five years, and, and a lot of her experiences were set in Bath. 
If you're a Jane Austen fan, uh, what do you do in Bath? One of the great things to do would be to take the trail. She actually lived in five homes in Bath in total. Mm-hmm. Um, when she arrived in Bath, the family was all, all but destitute. Um, so they moved from one home to another. There is now a wonderful exhibit. It's called the Jane Austen Museum, actually mm-hmm. in Gay Streets, which was the streets upon which she lived. Mm-hmm. You can visit this little museum and uh, they will show you how she would have lived and, and grace the streets of Bath at the time. Yeah, my disappointment with that Jane Austen Center is there was hardly any actual artifacts. It's been put together really as, as sort of a, a real-life museum, but it's so small. It's not top of my list of things to do, I must mm-hmm. say. It's, it's interesting if you're a Jane Austen fan. It, yeah, it's a lot of people are hell-bent to do anything relating yeah. to Jane Austen after having so much fun reading her novels. Yeah. Beth is on the line from Chicago, Illinois. Beth, thanks for your call. Okay. I am a Jane Austen fan, but I'm coming with my husband and my son, neither of whom are what I would call Jane Austen, sort of, let's call them very reluctant dragged into watching TV show Jane Austen fans, so they would like to do something other than Jane Austen while they're there. I'll do the most important things, but uh, I'm hoping there's something else for them. Bath is full of pubs and clubs, of course, but uh, the thing I like to do whenever I arrive in Bath is go down to Bath Abbey. There's a lovely Abbey down next to the uh, assembly rooms and the, the, the Bath Spa. Go into the Abbey. It's not the largest, most spectacular Abbey in the world, but you can go into the Abbey and you can actually climb up into the bell tower. And you can ring the bell of Bath Abbey. You can I ask know nicely, that. smile pleasantly, um, and they will let you ring the bell. It's not the big one; it's the little one. You push a button, but it's great fun to do. Also, for Beth's son, 15 years old, they finally reopened the spa, and it's quite a fancy swimming pool. I thought that was enjoyable. Yeah, um, hot water baths—the original spa water coming up out of the ground. Um, nowadays, it's just the one. There is a new one opening where you can actually go up on rooftop level, uh, mm-hmm. so you're above the city and swim at night. And it's to swim on this, like you're swimming on the top of a building in yeah. the middle of Bath, which is quite nice. Fantastic. Also, one great thing about Bath, and we're talking to Beth, so Beth, when you're in Bath with your 15-year-old son, remember there are guided walks done by uh, retired school teachers and historians and history buffs that they're just volunteers, and every day yes. there's a free walk from the center right in front of the Abbey, and they are delightful. They're just a hoot. They're just so uh, full of fascinating little insights into Bath, and be sure to take that guided walk in the evening there's, I think, the best street comedy you'll find anywhere in Europe is an outfit called Bizarre Bath, and it's it's two or three uh, comedians and actors that every night walk people around Bath, and that is really hilarious. First of all, is everyone aware that Bizarre Bath is not, not a historical walk? There's no history, no facts, no figures, nothing of any cultural interest whatsoever. It is, it is an evening's entertainment. Lots of fun, lots of laughter. Not yet, obviously, but we'll get there. It's hilarious for the whole family. Just edgy enough to be funny for your uh, 15-year-old son, but but not to get him into a zone where you'd rather he didn't go if mm. in a comedy kind of way. Mm. One thing, Beth, also, which I found fascinating is the Bath Costume Museum, which shows you 300 years of fashion with one decade at a time in display cases. So you've got all these mannequins dressed up featuring what was going on from a fashion point of view in the city that really made the fashion in Britain for a long time. But it takes you from the days when there were no right and left shoes, they were just called straights, all the way up to Twiggy and the age of the Beatles and, and beyond. So I think you can enjoy that. And while we're thinking about ways Beth and her husband and 15-year-old son can enjoy Bath, Mark, it's fun to actually hike along or bike along the old industrial canal paths, the towpaths. Yeah, the towpaths. There's a canal that uh, connects the River Avon to the River Kennet. It's called the Kennet and Avon Canal. It makes sense. Um, but uh, these canals throughout Europe, the boats that you supply, their trade on those canals had to be pulled by horses. So there are these wonderful trails that were the original towpaths mm. that the horses would walk. Nowadays, they're all pedestrianized. You, mm. can, you can use them as a cycle track if you want. There's a lovely walk from Bath out to a place called Bathampton, 
great pub where you can have a lovely lunch at the far end and then turn around and come back again. It's beautiful. And you can take your children into a pub, no problem in Britain. You can, and you can also actually take a canal boat from uh, uh, the embankment in Bath all the way out to Bathampton as well. There you go, Beth. Lots of ideas on Bath. That all sounds great. Thanks for your call. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Mark Seymour, and we're talking about enjoying Bath. And Mark, one of my favorite evenings in Bath was going to a pub and having scrumpy. What is scrumpy, and how can we enjoy that as a capper for our day in Bath? The English drink cider. Um, Americans drink cider and then hard cider. To us, hard cider is cider. There's another alcohol level above that, and it's called scrumpy. It's the second fermentation process of the uh, pressed apples. Hard, hard cider. Hard, hard cider. And uh, we have a saying, if you drink one pint of that, it will make you angry. It's lethal, lethal, lethal. Uh, and if you drink one and a half pints, you'll just be on the floor. You'll be on the floor. You won't remember much for a week. When I ordered my scrumpy, everybody stopped drinking and just watched to see what would happen after this little tourist drank it. <laughs> and it was quite a spectacle. But there are pubs in Beth that are famous for their scrumpy. There are. I mean, uh, Bath is in cider country. Somerset itself has been a, a cider county for right. millennia. Mark Seymour, thanks so much. Bath is just a beautiful place to visit, as you illustrate with all of your stories and insights. Thanks again. My pleasure. Up next, we're selling the house and leaving the country with an American who did just that. When they hit hard times in California, Ellen Fields and her husband found a surprisingly affordable and welcoming new home south of the border in the Yucatan. We'll hear her story next. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you learn a new language on your smartphone. Rosetta Stone uses images and games to teach instead of rote memorization. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. When Ellen and James Fields were laid off from their high-tech jobs in California at the start of the economic recession back in 2002, they decided it was time to try something completely different. They looked for a place where the cost of living was lower, but where the opportunities were bountiful for enjoying a good life and where it'd be easy to get back and forth to visit family back in the United States. They considered options all over the planet before finally deciding to relocate in Merida. That's the main city on Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. Ellen Fields joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what made Merida feel just like home for them and what they've learned about the Yucatan as editors of the popular English-language website called yucatanliving.com. Ellen, great to have you with us. Thank you, Rick. You and your husband really did quite a bit of searching before you settled on the Yucatan, Tell us what your priorities were, and uh, for people who might want to be considering a retirement or a, a new start, why would you choose the Yucatan, and specifically Merida, the big city, in the middle of the Yucatan, which I've always thought is just a big city that you fly into and get the heck out of there? <laughs> we had traveled a lot in the few years before we decided to move from California, and we'd been to Indonesia and Italy multiple times, and that's why both of those were considerations. We loved both those places. But after 9-11, we actually wanted somewhere we could drive to, so we could drive back to California if we needed to. It was kind of silly, but that's how people were thinking then. So we looked on, we started focusing on the continent, and we wanted a place where we could learn another language. We didn't want to move, for instance, to Costa Rica, where English is spoken. So we started focusing on those sorts of countries. Both of us actually never had even considered moving to Mexico. In our youth, we had traveled to Tijuana and weren't interested. But as I was searching on the internet, I came across a rogue real estate website. It was really 
bad and it was very, you know, basic, but it showed some pictures of houses and they were beautiful. They had these beautiful tiled floors and arched windows and just the kind of thing that we liked. So I looked into it a little bit more. There wasn't a lot on the internet about Merida then, but what we saw sounded intriguing. So we booked a flight to Cancun, went scuba diving for a few days and then drove over to Merida. We looked at houses, we liked what we saw, and we ended up buying one. Describe Merida just in general. Is it is there an idyllic uh, colonial downtown, or is it one big giant megapolis, or what? It's kind of like L.A. in the sense that it's spread out. The Yucatan Peninsula is flat as a pancake, and so Merida has been able to spread out on this flat area. But yes, it has a, a very old colonial downtown, some of which has been beautified and some of which still has not. In fact, I believe it is the second largest colonial city in the Americas next to Mexico City as far as land is concerned. And so there's a lot of beautiful old homes, many of which, when we first moved there, were crumbling, abandoned, nobody was living in them because the Mexican Yucatecan population, the people that made money and were moving up in the world, they wanted to move out of the centro. So the north of Merida was getting populated with the more modern buildings, which it still is. And so when we, by the time we got there, there were a lot of opportunities downtown to buy and renovate buildings, but there was still in the north things like Costco and Home Depot and restaurants and shopping malls and an international airport. So it seemed like it had everything going for it to us. It was a little hot, but we figured we could deal with that. And on weekends, we went to the Caribbean to go scuba diving. That was an important issue for us, too. In your website, yucatanliving.com, you call it a poor man's Shangri-La. How so? Um, <laughs> when when we moved there, Merida was very inexpensive, and maybe that's the poor man's part. The Yucatan Peninsula is an amazing playground, especially if you're interested at all in history or you like to be outdoors and you like the ocean. There's just so much to do there, not all in Merida, but within you know a day uh, trip. You can go to all sorts of things, just about everything except a mountain. And for that, you can climb, you know, used to be able to climb up Chichen Itza's pyramid. Talking about that, I remember climbing to some of those pre-Columbian uh, pyramids to the very top. And then you look out over the Yucatan, and like you said, it is so flat. All you see it is like a green carpet of, of jungle, but little bumps in the carpet. And those would be overgrown, uh, yet to be excavated, uh, pre-Columbian uh, pyramids, more temples. Yes, absolutely. There's still a lot undiscovered. You've lived in uh, Merida for about a decade, I understand. Uh, how do you like it? What are, what are some of the, let's just say somebody's tired of the rat race and they want to live well with the limited income, sell the Yucatan for a retirement home? Well, it's actually a very, a very good opportunity to retire and be able to live on less. Of course, you can live on more there, too. Now there's opportunities to live at any level that you want to. But you can buy or rent a house and renovate it or not. There's houses by the beach, or you can be in the city, or you can be in the jungle. You have those choices. You've got all the amenities that you're going to need, including very, very good health care. When we moved there, the health care was okay, but now the health care has improved immensely. And you can see a doctor really easily. A normal doctor's fee for a, an hour is 40 bucks, and there's very good doctors, all of whom have done some training, it seems, in the United States or Canada. So a lot of American listeners right now might be thinking, did she say good health care? Isn't she in Mexico? <laughs> yeah. And you know what? And not only that, great dentists, fabulous dentists. Wow. 
Yeah, I know it's not what people think. But for one thing, the Yucatan is its own unique place. It is in Mexico, but it's not like the rest of Mexico. In fact, there was a time in history when the Yucatan tried to become its own country. For many years, it was isolated from the rest of Mexico by a big uh, mountain range. It was not easy to get to the rest of Mexico from Yucatan. So it was very much influenced by the Caribbean and New Orleans and France and the rest of Europe Hmm. and not so much by the center of Mexico. So it's a different place. It has a a pride of being a Yucatec. People are Yucatecans first before they're Mexicans. Well, like I think you wrote in, in your website, coming to the Yucatan for the first time can be like learning to read. What did you mean by that? Well, it's so different. It, for us, anyway, it was so different from anything we had expected to see in Mexico. There's a lot of French and Italian-inspired architecture. Yeah. It's very hot, and it's called a tropical desert, so it has two rainy seasons and two very hot dry seasons. And it just didn't really look like our image of Mexico, which yeah. is being from California, was more kind of northern Mexico is what we had in mind. It's very different from there. Ellen Fields is a website designer and editor who calls herself the working gringa. She's telling us why she and her husband chose Merida in Mexico's Yucatan state as the best place they found to buy a home and start a new life. Their online magazine for expats who are living or traveling in the Yucatan is called yucatanliving.com. Ellen, I'm still curious about if somebody was to retire or move into a place like Merida, talk about some of just the intimate details, uh, you know, filling up the the gas tank, going to the theater, paying your taxes, uh, what do you do uh, with the neighbors, this kind of thing when you're an expat in Merida. Well, let's talk about property taxes. I think we had a, our property taxes were somewhere between $100 and $200 a year for a very nice big house. And, and what would a nice big house cost if you wanted to buy it? Just ballpark. Well, nowadays, it could be anywhere between 100000 and a million. Can you get a good place for $100,000? Absolutely, absolutely. And you pay a couple hundred dollars a year for your uh, taxes, and then you got uh, good medical and dental at a pittance. Uh, what if you want to go downtown and, and go to a nice restaurant or go to a movie and not feel like you're traveling, but you're just home and you're going to go to a nice movie? Well, for one thing, you can see a lot of things for free. The city of Merida puts on lots of musical events, movies, art shows that are all free to the public. There's an amazing amount of free entertainment in Merida Centro. You can go to see a movie in a cultural center downtown, or you can go to a very modern movie theater in the north that's in a shopping mall and and drink wine and eat sushi while you're watching your movie. I mean, there's one of the things about Meredith is an incredible range of choices. So depending on your pocketbook, you can can fit in anywhere in that range. I love the way that this really breaks down people's perceptions. You're you're raving about the dentistry and and the health care. You have wine and sushi at a a movie in in the mall in the suburbs. It it just sounds like... (laughs) (laughs) something that a lot of people don't allow themselves to consider that is a possibility. My most vivid memory of of Merida is S-shaped benches in the park where people could sit and look at each other. I just thought that was so charming. Is that still there? Oh, absolutely. Conversaciones. I think originally they were so that couples could, you know, get together without touching each other. And, you know, it was a way to be close in public, (laughs) but it was okay with the chaperone if they were sitting in one of those. 
yes, those are still there in the parks. The parks are beautiful, and Merida has a central park, the Plaza Grande, which has those chairs and the beautiful trees. And every Sunday, there's a big market there. There's a lot of charming and cultural events. The thing about the Yucatan too is the the tradition in Yucatan is very gracious. The people are very gracious. When we first moved there, you wouldn't dream of passing someone on the street without saying "Buenos dias," "Buenas noches." That's you know not quite as much now with the young people, but it's still very much a part of the tradition, and that's lovely. And we always felt very much accepted. We never felt have felt in any way that we weren't welcome. Now that's interesting because you know we are wealthy Norte Americanos. I mean, even if you're not a rich American compared to the the local economy, you're probably relatively well off. Is there any resentment when a an American can come down there and live high on the hog on a, a teacher's retirement? Well, let's just say, yeah, I, I think there probably are people that resent, have resented through the years, you know, we're buying up all the houses and renovating them. At first, that, there was that resentment. Now, I think people are seeing that the Merida, the downtown area is getting renovated and becoming a, a real tourist attraction, and everybody's benefiting from that. And also, most of the expats in Merida are good citizens. We participate in a lot of fundraising and helping. There's a lot of people that help with stray dogs and spay and neuter programs and that kind of thing. People are renovating their houses and their streets so things look nice. And and then whenever an expat comes in and moves into Merida, they become a source of income for the people around them. You know, you hire somebody to, to clean your house. This is something when I first moved there, I resisted, you know, like, I don't need someone to clean my house. I'm not that rich, you know, but you're helping somebody. They want to, they want that job. And frankly, they do it a lot better than I do. And they're happy and you're happy. And everybody's happy. It works out great. What do you pay to have somebody clean your house? I usually pay about 250 pesos to 300 pesos for a day's work. And that, depending on the exchange rate, which is really high right now, it's about 20 to $25 a day. So for 25 bucks, you get a maid to come in and work all day. Exactly. And that's doing them a favor because they need the job. Exactly. Now, when people are thinking of being an expat, my, my impression is you can make a choice. You can, you can live in a place like the Yucatan with other Americans and just enjoy the weather and the prices, or you can integrate into the community. Are there two kinds of expats? Well, there's a whole range. But yes, there mm-hmm. are people that go and they don't want to learn Spanish. They want to just be comfortable as if they were in their own country. And they complain about the fact that it's not like home. You know, this doesn't work right and this you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the expats who really get more out of it are the people that come and want to learn from the country and are grateful to be there and grateful for the differences. There's so much to be learned. And just learning a new language teaches you so much about yourself and about the way you look at the world and about the people that you're sharing the city with. It's been fascinating for us. I mean, we moved there, I guess we were in our late 40s at the time, and it was just like reviving us completely. I mean, it was just like going back to school Hmm. or something. Sounds wonderful. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ellen Fields, and Ellen has lived for about 10 years in Yucatan. She shares her information in a a very practical and helpful website. It's called yucatanliving.com. Ellen, when when you're thinking about the Yucatan Peninsula, one of my fond memories is all the different fruits that you can enjoy there. Mm, Yes. (laughs) Fruits you've never heard of, probably, too. Well, that's what's really amazing. I mean, of course, there's wonderful oranges and mangoes, but talk about some of the new fruits. Ah, well, the newest fruit that I fell in love with is the pitaya, which I fell in love with it 
for the way it tastes, but also for the way it looks. It looks like it was designed by an artist. They call it dragon fruit in other places, and it grows really strangely. It grows on a what looks like a cactus that doesn't come out of the ground. It, it drapes over a wall or a tree or something, so it's a sort of an air cactus. It flowers, and then it has these amazing fruits that are pink with green tips, green tipped mm. leaves, and then when you slice it, it's white on the inside with little black seeds. It's stunning. What's the folk music in the Yucatan? First of all, the Yucatan was famous around the beginning of the 20th century for its music. It's called Trova, and it was famous all over the world at that time. So Trova is still sung and performed throughout Merida. Used probably no night when you couldn't go find somebody playing some mu- that kind of music. On I think it's Thursday nights, the the men who are the trovadores, who play trova, gather in the square, and you can just go up to them and have them play a few songs for you, or you can ask them to come to your house and play for a certain amount per hour. Anyway, they are there in groups of twos and threes. So that's the traditional Yucatecan music. That would be uh, three male voices, or two or three male voices, and two or three guitars, is that right? Exactly. Now, a lot of people are concerned about safety in Mexico and the drug war and... Uh, violent corruption and so on. And I I understand the Yucatan thinks of itself as the safest state in Mexico. What's your take on that for an expat? My take on that is that it is the safest state in Mexico. Now, I haven't traveled to every other state, but I've never felt in any way in danger in Merida or in Yucatan. I've driven all over the Yucatan Peninsula, and people couldn't be kinder and nicer. You just don't hear about... I mean, once in a while, somebody will get killed... You know, once in a while, something bad happens, like it would in any city of over mm-hmm. of almost a million people, but far, far less than what would happen if you were living in Houston or Dallas or Denver or Chicago. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a very, very safe place. So it's a real city. You can become part of the local scene. You're an hour's drive away from wonderful beach resorts. It just sounds like a great setup. And you're helping people with your website. What's the website again? The website is yucatanliving.com, and okay. we wrote it so that it's information about the Yucatan Peninsula in English. We have everything from information about destinations, things you might want to visit within the peninsula, like you know a cool little town that has a beautiful church, that sort of thing. Or it all, we have a section called Yucatan Survivor, which has articles about things you need to know if you're living there, like how your plumbing works, because it works a little differently than it does in the States. Ellen, I would imagine it's kind of dangerous for somebody who's uh, in a uh, kind of a rut in the United States to peruse that website because they might think they should relocate south of the border. Ellen Fields, thanks so much. It's a fascinating topic to think about becoming an expat in a wonderland like the Yucatan. Thank you very much, Fred. You can learn more about the life of expatriates in Merida and find lots of vacation planning resources for the Yucatan at Ellen's online magazine. It's called yucatanliving.com. Tell us how you've been inspired in your travels in the form of an original haiku poem. The radio section of our website at ricksteves.com has details on how to send us your submissions. Donnie Willett sends us a batch of haiku written from a window seat on a flight from San Diego to Nice, France. Here's what the view was like. The earth cracked and split. 
a maze called the Grand Canyon, river's course defined. Patches round and square, farmer's geometric art, patterns on the earth. 70 below, ice crystals on the window, evidence of cold. Walk upon the clouds, body's impossible dream, playground of my mind. Send us haiku impressions from your travels. There's a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Next, we sit down with friends from Spain while they dish out the news and the gossip that you'll hear being discussed in the bars and cafes of Spain. That's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Uh, my name is Holger Zimmer and I have a Zungenbrecher. I got a tongue twister for you in German. Acht alte Ameisen aßen am Abend Ananas. Which just basically means, very sweetly, eight aged ants were eating pineapple in the evening. Acht alte Ameisen aßen am Abend Ananas. One of my favorite things to do wherever I'm traveling is to just sit down in a bar or a cafe, make some new friends, and chat about the world from their perspective. Let's imagine we're in Spain right now and about to join tour guides Francisco Gloria and Federico Barroso as they discuss what's been in the news in their country lately. They'll help us get up to speed on what they and their neighbors are talking about in Spain. Francisco and Federico, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So if you're traveling in Spain and you want to connect with some local people and have a, how do you say beer? Cerveza. Cerveza. And, or a vino tinto. Tinto. Oh, a little glass of red wine. And you want to talk with people. Where do you go? Where's a good place to hang out and talk with people? Any bar or Spanish. Uh, any bar in Spain. Any bar in Spain. Any bar. Any, any bar. I mean, Spain, we have many, many churches, but we have more bars than churches, you see. And when you think of a bar, it's not really a, like a tavern. It's the little cafe, diner, wine bar, beer saloon on the corner. Everybody's welcome. Many generations. Young people, old people. Exactly. So it's just a gathering place for eating and drinking is a way of socializing. That's what we do. And, and many kind of people, that is true. Families with, with kids and older people, anyone goes there. And I like it because there's food there all day long. You, you yep. know, in Spain, people eat very late. But if you want to just have a bite to eat any time of day, it's not expensive. It's part of the, the social scene. Yeah, it is a place to get together and it's a place to eat and to talk. And Now, Francisco, last time you were in a bar, uh, what are people talking about? What's the buzz in Spain these days? What's one topic that would I be? I think one of the hottest topics is right now it's about politics. Uh, mm -hmm. Ever since Franco time, we've had two major political parties, conservative and socialist. And for many years, it's been okay. They've been on up, down, up, downs. But now we're in a big, big down. Mm -hmm. And we need a change. So and when was Fra Franco was the dictator? He was the right wing mm -hmm. dictator, and and uh, he died what year? Nineteen seventy five. And then he gave the the power to the king, kind of thinking he would continue the his the brand of fascism or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But he uh, sort of surprised people and went democratic on us, didn't? Yeah, uh, our king, who is not in a very good position right now, right. because our former king, now. our former king. Yes, sorry. But right, but back then he was a champion of the people. He disappointed Franco. He disappointed his... Franco, and he went for freedom. And we have to thank him for that. He has so many things wrong lately, but back then he did so many great things. Quite courageous. What, what's an example of why uh, Juan Carlos, right? Yes. Why would he have been a champion of the people, 
Before, we'll talk about his current problems in a moment, mm-hmm. but back then, how would he be celebrated, Federico? Personally, I think, I think, you know, que Juan Carlos, in my opinion, has been a kind of okay king. I don't really consider that he was the man who saved our democracy. I think that he just played the role that he had to play uh-huh. with a lot of prudency, all right? Uh-huh. And obviously, with a team, you know, telling him what to do, when, where, and how, okay? So, in my opinion, I don't have to say bad things about him, but at the same time, I don't really want to say that he was our savior. No okay? big hero. Oh, no, no, no. No, no big way. hero. No but, but the fact is, you had a dictatorship until Franco died in the mm-hmm. 1970s, yeah. and now the king has really gone with this idea of a constitutional monarch, where you still mm-hmm. have a king, like up in Norway or Sweden, mm-hmm. but limited by a constitution. Now, totally. he has had some very serious public image problems in the last few years. Uh, talk about what, what's going on with the royalty. I personally, Rick, I belong to a minority of Spaniards that we think that I personally consider the monarchy, the Spanish monarchy, as a very old-fashioned institution and quite useless. I'm nothing against those people, just I don't really understand, you know, mm-hmm. the role of a monarchy in southern Europe, okay? Northern mm-hmm. Europe is another story. Um, How would it be an, another story in the north? Well, because those are small countries with not so many population and those countries where everything works and they have a, a higher economical status, you see. I mean, life is easier and they can actually have that, those so they, they cultural have, ambassadors. Yeah, so the king, the, the constitutional monarch is more of a cultural ambassador. He's a ceremonial position. Totally. They are our figureheads. They don't actually have the power. Mm-hmm. It's an extremely expensive institution, I think. Mm-hmm. And in the last, I really think personally, personally, I think that we have been hibernating for several decades, okay? Mm. And now we see what it was obvious, but it, it is actually much more obvious now. And I'm not, we are not happy about some members of the Spanish monarchy. Francisco. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Francisco, how has the, the royal family screwed up for their public image in the last decade? Well, our king, he, there was a turning point about two years ago. He, there were some pictures of him hunting. Yeah. Hunting uh, elephants in <laughs> hunting Africa. Hunting elephants in Africa. Hunting hunting elephants. One in Spain, there was a big, huge crisis. It was not a very... So Spain is right almost moment. in a depression. Things are terrible economically. Well, we're, we're, improving, we're improving. But you were in yes. the midst of some serious problems, and your king goes hunting elephants yeah. in Africa. It was a big mistake. It was a big, major mistake. Then we had lovers showing off. I mean, not that we didn't know he had. Come on, he's a bourbon. He, they all have lovers. So. Mm-hmm. so they showed up. It was not good because most of the people who don't like the monarchy, people at least, they like the queen. Our queen, Queen Sophia, she's a very strict woman, and she's worked. You know, right. she has put up with her husband, <laughs> but she has worked for Spain. Uh-huh. So, so and how about the children of the royal family, Federico? Well, the thing is that, uh, let me tell you, by the way, we, we had, could see funny, funny cartoons about those elephants, you know, saying goodbye to Juan Carlos. He had an accident, actually, a physical accident there, and, and the cartoon was called Out of Africa. <laughs> All right? And the thing is that he was there, actually, I don't really care about his um, sexual life, but the thing is that um, we paid that, okay? He was there with her, with those elephants. Anyway. He was, now, he was with a mistress in yeah, Africa? Exactly. And, yeah, and, and, then, and then he had an accident? He had an accident. What he was broke, the accident? He broke, actually, one of his... Um, Ribs. Uh, ribs, exactly. Yeah. Just trying to hand that elephant. He had a physical accident. He broke one of his ribs. He had to go to the hospital. How did there he was break a, his ribs? There was, there was, in a very silly way. He's actually a kind of a, well, he's not actually a very smart guy. What did, what did he do? Trying to hand the elephant, you know, he, he put the, the, the feet in the wrong place at the wrong time and he broke, actually. He fell down. He fell down. Was he trying to, what was he trying to do with the elephant? Well, uh, we should ask the elephant, you know, <laughs> to see what's going on there. But the thing is that, we all knew that thanks to a paparazzi who was right there. Was the <laughs> elephant dead and he was yes. trying to climb on top of him? 
No, because uh, he killed the elephant, which yeah. is an extremely expensive thing. And the picture was like mm. him, like in, like on a trophy. So he was so. like triumphing over yes. the elephant. Yes. And like, then he fell and he broke his ribs. Exactly. Yeah. But you know something else? This is embarrassing. Not only that, is that he didn't inform the government that he was out of Spain. So wait a minute. He so has the, to do that. The king of Spain has snuck away to Africa with his mistress, yep. hunting elephants. Yep. He shoots an elephant, and he's like some high school kid mm. triumphing over the dead beast, <gasps> and he falls and he breaks his ribs, and, and then it hits the newspaper. When Spain is in economic major times, major. T- this is a very awkward moment. It was a very awkward for- no, moment, no. and it was the first time the king uh, said, "I'm sorry, I've done wrong." Well, I Which bet. Which is incredible. I bet. I mean, so he came home with his uh, royal tail mm. between his between legs. Between his legs, yeah. <laughs> mm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about what they're talking about in Spain. And we're joined by Federico Garcia Barroso from Madrid and Francisco Glaria from Pamplona. Federico, the king is running around in Africa shooting elephants with his mistress. How mm. old is he? He's actually 75 years old. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Those Spaniards. <laughs> forever young, huh? <laughs> yeah, okay, forever. so you got your king laid up, uh, broken ribs, angry mistress, dead elephant, uh, angry mm. public. What about the, his children? Well, we find here, Elena is a, the, the oldest princess, Cristina is the youngest one, and then we find Felipe, Philip, you know, the new king of Spain. He, I mean, that family, they had problems with those two sons-in-law. First, Elena's husband, he had a stroke because of consuming some... Mm. Drugs, okay? Funny stuff. Yeah, yeah, that who, happened. Who is this now? He's actually the son-in-law, the, the husband of Elena, so, the, the, the oldest princess. So the, the son-in-law of the king had a stroke because of a hard drug problem. Exactly. You see, that was, a, that was something that happened, so his private mm-hmm. life, right. but that is something that happened, and as you okay. can see, that is not actually the best image, you know, for the no. monarchy. But let's go, let's go farther if I tell the, the second one. I mean, the Christina's husband is a man. He was a popular Okay, was a sports player, you Everybody see. I loved him. And uh, he, now we know that he has been, for several years, he has been stealing huge amounts of public money, you know, and delivering all that money to a bank paradise in Belize, in Central America. And what is the problem now? The problem is that the signature of Christina is also in those papers. And there is a kind of obsession in this country to say, oh, you know what? She was in love. She knew nothing. She was blind. She was deaf. You know, and there is a kind of obsession to blame him, obviously. He's going to go to jail. We hope so. And she's like, oh, you know what? She's our princess. She knew nothing. These are royals that want to apologize and cut them some slack. Yeah. Okay. I can even tell you, Rick, um, the situation is so, so delicate that the, from uh, in the last years, we never see family picture with Felipe, you know. Philip, our new king, and Leticia, our new queen, you know, they are never sharing any space with those members of the so family. So this is Felipe. The, so Juan Carlos, mm-hmm. did he just give up the king? Totally, that happened. Yeah. And that is another story. And, you know, I don't really think that the, I mean, things happen just by coincidence, you see. That happened in June 2014, okay? Uh-huh. And we were quite surprised about that. In just one day, we could see how, oh. So I suddenly mean, Juan Carlos has, there's a formal way to abdicate. Yeah. And the, give the throne to his son, yeah. Felipe. And now Felipe is trying to start fresh and distance himself from yes. these. Now, is Felipe's totally. uh, image stronger? Well, he's, he's much more prepared. He's a young person. He's about yeah. 48, mm. I don't 48, know, something, something, 48 like something like that. Yeah. Like that. And he's, he's 46, 46, no. two years older than me. So what the thing is, uh, he's a very young man. He's very well prepared. He speaks languages. So he's uh-huh. very well traveled. He's studied everywhere. So he's, I think he's prepared to do it. But the thing is that he has inherited this new title with his brother-in-law doing all of these funny things. So he has a, he's going to have a hard time to make us believe in him. But it's a disadvantage anyhow if you're a mm. modern royal in, in this generation. I mean, mm. you've, you've got to 
if you have scandals, people are going to jump on you, I would say. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Francisco Gloria and Federico Barroso about what's going on in Spain. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And James is calling in from Virginia Beach in Virginia. James, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. How are you? I, I, I went to Madrid on my own for a week in spring break while I was still teaching this last year. And... You know, I'm staying in Madrid, and I'm, I'm only a couple blocks off of Puerto del Sol. And, you know, every night I go out to eat and walk around, just see what people are doing, of course. But almost every night, there are political protests at the Puerto del Sol, you know, in the large square. And not knowing that much Spanish, I didn't understand. I would see these uh, older gentlemen, well, actually they're younger than me, 55 to 65 years old, holding up these posters and being very earnest about it. They're showing like pictures of five prisoners of uh, the victims of Francoism. So, you know, this mm. is vic- victims of Francoism. I guess comments you made a few minutes ago that might still want justice, and I don't know so Franco, what all that means, but yeah, still talking about it. Franco died 40 years ago, and they're still victims of Francoism, and they're demonstrating on the main square, the Porta del Sol in Madrid, Federico yeah. is from Madrid. Federico, what's up? Well, actually, I can tell you. I also my condo is just two blocks away from that place, and I can see how every Thursday afternoon we find those people. Well, let me tell you, all the Americans, that those people are what we call in Spain those Republicans that are actually the opposite concept that you have in America. Our Republicans are our liberal people with mm-hmm. that flag with a purple color, by the way. So and they I, were the people in the Civil War who fought Franco and lost? Exactly. The thing is that, we, you know, those were times of freedom of speech in my country in those 1930s. And unfortunately, Franco gave that military coup d'etat. He destroyed mm-hmm. democracy. He, that was the beginning of a civil war. At the beginning of a nightmare, he finally won the war. And the thing is that uh, many of those people are protesting because those relatives and those friends were killed not during the Spanish Civil War, during the times of the dictatorship, some people were taken into that big building, the clock tower, which is it was actually the central post office. That was a place where Franco tortured and killed many people in those 40s and those 50s. And those people are still asking for justice. This is something quite similar to what is happening in Argentina in Buenos Aires and with those mothers with the white handkerchiefs. And that building is right overlooking Puerto del Sol. Yeah. That's right. So you can be having your happy-go-lucky tourist time on the main square. And for Spaniards, they look at that building. Exactly. And, and I understand Franco would actually, hmm. didn't they throw people right out the windows or something like this? Oh, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, many, many there are many, many scary stories and things that are, that are I can even tell you how we, we see those photos, those pictures, and that we find some relatives of Federico García Lorca, the poet, who was actually killed by mm. Franco in those troubled years. It's a still a very delicate issue. It's a pity to see that they are just a small group of people, but we have to respect them because they are right. They are still asking for justice, mm-hmm. and, and, and that is... That is a point. It's easy when you're in Madrid, James, to have demonstrations going on, and, and like you, I, I wouldn't know what they're for. Sometimes they're celebrations, and sometimes they're angry demonstrations, and, and it's good to ask, you know, anytime you can ask a local what's going on, and I always find that fascinating. Thanks for your call, James. Okay, thank you. Take care. Take care. Thank you. And we're talking with Francisco Gloria and Federico Barroso about what's happening in Spain. Francisco, James was just talking about a demonstration he saw. Of course, Spain has been suffering through an economic crisis as severe as any place in Europe. What's the general feeling in Spain now about how the economy is doing? I think we're beginning to see, not the end, but we're beginning to see the beginning of the end of it. But the biggest problem is that people don't believe anymore in politicians. We're in a very lack of happiness, of uh, not of happiness, of, you know, who do we trust? We cannot it's kind trust of a politicians. broken spirit yes. as a nation. Well, 
I think the, the sensation of nation is beginning to be stronger because people are donating more. We're helping more people. So we're trying to forget about politicians. We're trying to forget about monarchy. We're trying to forget about these things that are, let's say, useless. You need help? Ask for it. Uh, we're beginning to see a lot of young people that they're fired. What do you do? You create your own internet company and you sell whatever you know what to do over the net, which I think is not only Spanish, it's a global issue. Is there a political movement that's answering this hunger? The two main political parties, we cannot vote them, which is terrible. So you've given up on your equivalent of the Democrats and the exactly. Republicans. So now there has been another one that has been brought up new. It's called Podemos. I think it's kind of funny. The what does that mean? It's, yes, we can. Yes, we can. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Obama. Well, the thing is that they're very left uh-huh. uh, political party. The yes, we can party. Yes. I mean, and is going, there a hope for them? They're, they're a new, a fresh answer, maybe? The thing is that at least there's a change. Uh-huh. Personally, I don't think it is the right change because right. they're going way too much right. to the left. I mean, we're talking Castro, we're talking, oh. uh, you know, no, it's, to me it's too much, but at least they're changing. They're making Shake, the other two Shaking things yes. up a little bit so, to maybe wake up the other parties that are I think are it's more than wake up. I think it's a slap in the face. Slap in the face. Federico, if you're a, a traveler dreaming of going to Spain, but you've seen news stories about demonstrations mm-hmm. and you've heard about things are just desperate economically, mm. what do we need to worry about or be concerned about as travelers? Or how would this crisis impact our visit? Well, uh, let me tell you that we we are tour guides. It's a privilege, you know, to work in tourism industry in this guild because we don't really see the crisis, okay? We see how, I mean, we live in big cities where there is a lot of money going on there, you know, because mm-hmm. visitors are coming to Spain. Spain is still a safe destination. We have our political problems, of course, and some economical crisis, of course, but this is not really, really affecting, you know, to our so as tourism a tourist, industry. as a tourist, you hardly see it because you go to the famous, charming, lucky towns. But, exactly. But the other half of the country, the industrial towns without the rich heritage and all of the tourism, they would be more depressing. Exactly. Especially those small towns that were in those days, just maybe 10 or 15 years ago, they were victims of that fictitious bubble, you know, housing mm-hmm. bubble, yeah. you see. This is something that happened also in America and in other places, you see. Mm-hmm. And and nowadays we have to face reality, you see. We, we are not the only ones. There are other countries with the same problems. But specifically in the case of Spain, we have a political crisis. Our political skeleton is not working any, anymore. Mm-hmm. We have to change that and immediately after we talk about economy. I think that that, that is a, a consequence, you see, of our political problems and at the same time we are in the, in the age of globalization and that is affecting us seriously. Well, I'm glad that there is understanding in Spain that there may be a light at the end of the tunnel and there's still an interest in finding it. Yes. And I'm glad that travelers can come to Spain and enjoy mm. a beautiful Spanish time and that there's guides like you who can help us out. Federico Barroso, Francisco Gloria, thank you so much and best wishes in Spain. Thank you. Thank you. Hope to see you there. Ya no tengo máquina porque la vendió y con el dinero le compra un vestido lleno de volante lleva ese vestido pa' que mi gitana no me eche en olvido Pone bife, ne bife Cata mi ella mana llana Ne bife, ne bife Cata mi ella mana llana Travel with Rick Steves is a production of Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. It's produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. 
Thanks to Andrew Cannon at El Dorado Broadcasting in San Luis Obispo for studio help this week. We look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, giving you feedback on your pronunciation as you learn a new language to help your language be clear and authentic sounding to the native ear. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Spain, Portugal, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books for Iberia and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.